The Christmas story is told for us in Luke 2 is the story of the birth of Jesus, and we began to look at it last week. And uh, it says in Luke 2, verse 1, it said, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Last week we paused right there, and we made the statement from the story that God was working globally in the story uh, to bring his son. Uh, But God was also working not only at the global level, but he was also working at the personal level. So verse 4, it says, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child, So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And that's where we came to last Sunday. And there's a point here as we come to the end of verse 7 that there is what I began to describe last week, a contrast. In fact, I would say it's even an ironic contrast. There is, a, there is a contrast between what God not only is doing globally, but he is also doing personally. You see a contrast in, in the social standing between Caesar Augustus and Joseph and Mary. But the other, the other irony to the story that I want to say at this point, and just for us to spend just a few moments right here before we go to verse 8, is that there is an ironic uh, contrast here. Because when you just come to the end of verse 7, history's most significant event, and and part of the reason I can say that, uh, is because we divide human history, A.D. and B.C., based on this moment. So I would contend this is the most significant event in all of human history. But the ironic contrast to me, when just at the point of the end of verse 7, is that even though you have the most significant event in all of human history, the world is unaware of what is happening. And I want us to get that sense before we move to verse 8. The most significant event in all of human history. But the, the irony of it and the contrast. So monumental. But virtually no one knows. The people even that are surround the story are unaware. Um... When I thought of this point, my mind went to one of the Christmas carols that we sing. Uh, and it's, it's the Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And I didn't ask Byron to sing it. I, I don't want to be that guy that goes, hey, I'm going to use that in my sermon, so why don't we sing O Little Town of Bethlehem? 
it's something you are very familiar with, but uh, I've told the story before of uh, Old Little Town of Bethlehem was written in, in 16, I'm sorry, in 1868 by Phillips Brooks, who was a pastor. Uh, and it all stemmed back to an experience he had in 1865. Phillips Brooks is uh, he's, he's a 30-year-old pastor in Philadelphia, but has great prominence. Uh, but he is, uh, by Christmas of 1865, Phillips Brooks is, he is emotionally and spiritually spent. Uh, and part of the reason was that it's, uh, America was going through the Civil War. But even to top that off, Phillips Brooks was such a prominent pastor. Phillips Brooks, who wrote this, was the pastor who delivered the sermon at Abraham Lincoln's funeral. Okay? But he comes to 1865 and he's, he, is, he is just, he's emotionally and physically and spiritually spent. And he goes on an extended trip to the Holy Lands. And I've told this story before, but he ends up in Bethlehem on Christmas Eve and he decides on a whim that afternoon that he is going to commandeer a horse and he's going to ride that five to six miles to Bethlehem. So Phillips Brooks against the advice of the people he was traveling with, gets a horse and he begins to ride cross country. And about dusk, as the sun is setting, he comes upon the little village of Bethlehem. Just a little village. Quite inconspicuous. Very common. In fact, Phillips Brooks would have said later that he said, you know, uh, I mean, this is 1865. Uh, He said the village wasn't probably much different than it had been uh, in Jesus' day. Understand there's not a lot of world progress at that point, advancement. And he just envisioned, but he, he came up on Bethlehem as the sun is setting, and God just did something in his heart that, quite honestly, initially he could not even put into words. And it's three years later that he writes this from that experience of coming up on Bethlehem and this sense, and you hear it in his first verse, that he writes of how this little village is so inconspicuous, unremarkable, so common, but God entered human history at that point on the planet. Uh, and there is this sense, when I, when I thought of that, that ironic contrast between the most significant event and how the world was unaware. I thought of Phillips Brooks' words in Old Little Town of Bethlehem, that first verse. And I know we sing it all the time, but think about what he's, he's writing. He says, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And I thought of how that first verse conveys, this is against the advice of my preaching professors. Think about the tune. I'm going to sing what I was, what I was warning you of. I'm, I'm going to sing because there is something in the tune that was written, and there's a whole story behind the... Phillips Brooks just wrote the words. And 
he asked another man, and you can look it up in the hymn book. It has the man's name. I don't know what his name is, but to write a tune for this. And when this man tried to capture the words of verse 1, remember what it says. It says, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie above thy deep and dreamless sleep. The silent stars go by. And then it starts, and I've asked Amy about it. Yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And I, I thought about that when it says, yet in thy dark street shineth. And I, I went to Amy this morning for church. I said, what is that musically? I said, you're the music major. And she, we literally got on the piano and she played it. And she said, well, what, it, it doesn't go into a minor key, but it, it goes into some, what did you call it? Accidentals. Accidentals. And for you, it sort of changes key. It's, it's, it's notes that are a little bit create a, a tone or a sound of a minor key. And when the man who wrote the tune, when he read the words, I think he was communicating musically this sense of, of what I'm calling an ironic contrast that the greatest event in all the world, and the world was unaware isn't that amazing? And you kind of get that in Luke chapter 2, just when we come to the end of verse 7. I realize that sometimes in the most unremarkable circumstances, God is fulfilling the most remarkable purpose. Sometimes, in the most unremarkable circumstances, God is fulfilling the most remarkable purpose. And so it is in the Christmas story uh, to a world that was unaware of what God was doing. When we come to verse 8, what we see is that God's response was God sent a message. <laughs> I, I get this sense when we come to verse 8. <laughs> it says, If heaven could not contain itself, as God is doing this remarkable thing, but the world is unaware. It was as if God had to announce the birth of his son. God did not want them to miss this. He had to say something. And so then we pick up the story in verse 8. I want to read 8 through 20 and uh, maybe just make a comment or two. <clears throat> a few than that, you all understand. So it says in verse 8, in the midst of that, 
most remarkable event that the world is unaware of. It says, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord, Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. <laughs> to a world that was unaware, God sent a message. Uh, verse 8, we see that the message came to uh, some unlikely recipients. It was the shepherds outside of Bethlehem. Bethlehem would have just been a small village at the time. Um, it's, it's very rocky, hilly soil. It's not good for agriculture. There are some valleys and comes into play in the story of Ruth. But most of it is just not fit for agriculture, and so they, they graze their sheep out there on those hills outside of Bethlehem. Uh, this is my take on it. It's like... And I just bit my tongue as much as I could during our life group because this was our life group message uh, lesson, and I just mm, bit my tongue. Here's my answers I would have given. Uh, why the shepherds? Partly the way I look at it is the birth surely happened at night, and partly the way I envision it, the shepherds were the only ones awake. And God's just going like, I've got to tell somebody uh, who is even awake right now. Boom, those guys outside of town. Angels, it's like, go. It's like, partly, I, I think it was the sense that um, they were the only ones awake, but they were such unlikely recipients of the message. Uh, the shepherds were, were low, way down, down with Mary and Joseph on the social uh, ladder. Uh, I think there are other reasons, and it'll come into play as we see the message from the angels. But I would say at this point, it is almost fitting, though, in God's mind that he would appear to the shepherds because it goes back uh, a thousand years. To the time of David. Because David is a shepherd boy. 
on those hills, I don't know, the very hills, outside of Bethlehem. And do you remember the whole story of God sending Samuel to anoint a king? And it's like, go to Jesse's house in Bethlehem, and there's seven sons, and it's like, nope, 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 nope. And uh, Samuel says, uh, actually God says before this, he tells Samuel, he said, don't look at the outward appearance because that's not the way God chooses. But they go through the seven. And so it's kind of interesting to me, and it's, it's fitting in God's scheme of things that the unlikely recipients of the first message go back to the unlikely young man who would become king, who is number eight son of Jesse and is tending the flocks in those same fields outside of Bethlehem. And God says, that's the, because I, I don't look at the outward appearance, I look at the heart. And that's a young man who has a heart after God. And so it, I think in, in God's scheme, you say, well, they're unlikely, but in God's scheme of things, it seems that it is quite fitting that he would announce it to the angel, to the, to the shepherds. Uh, God sends messengers in verse 9, and it is the angels. Uh, in fact, the very word angel just means a messenger, and it could refer to a human messenger, but in this case, it is a heavenly messenger. Would have been very dramatic. We talked about this in our life group in the midst of the darkness out there on those hills in Bethlehem. Uh, in a day, you didn't have electricity, there's no street lights, anything else, but for the angels to come, it would have been, and originally it's just an angel, but if you look at verse 9 closely, it says an angel of the Lord stood before them, but then it has this phrase, and I don't know exactly what it means, but it says, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. So I think there would have been the glory of the angel, but it's almost as if this beam from heaven comes down and God says, no, it's not just about the brightness of the angel, but it is about the glory of God that is shed around those shepherds that night. It would have been a very dramatic scene. So God, in the midst of that, sends messengers, heavenly messengers. But the most significant thing today, starting in verse 10, is the message. Because I've said this, in the midst of of circumstances uh, that the world is unaware of, God speaks. This is really the one thing I want you to hear today. In the midst of the unremarkable, from a worldly perspective, God many times is doing a remarkable thing, but we only know that because of what God says. The only reason anyone knew what God was doing that day is because God spoke. He sent a message, and I think he did it in such a way to get their attention as he had done with the angels to Mary and Joseph. He sends a message in verse 10. It says, the angels said to them, do not be afraid, which is what angels always say. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Look at those words. I know those words. We, they've rung through our minds for years. But literally what it, it says, that phrase, I bring you good tidings, is literally the word that's used in the rest of the New Testament for evangelize. It's one word in the Greek. And evangelize means, or evangelism means, to proclaim good news. To evangelize, is, in the Greek word, is to proclaim good news. 
and they used it. it. The angels were the first evangelists because they were the ones who were proclaiming the good news, uh, which will be great joy. Uh, do you understand that when angels speak, they do not speak except what God tells them to speak? And so anytime an angel speaks in the scripture, you go, okay, these, these words are not muddled. We, we haven't misunderstood what, no, this is what God said to the angels to tell them. He said that it will be a message of great joy, which will be to all people. It includes the shepherds and all people. But here it is in verse 11. Look at the words. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Yes, the announcement is there's a baby that is born. It is in the city of Bethlehem. It's been, I think it's been born right then. It's like now, right now. You boys are the only ones awake. That's why I'm announcing it to you. I couldn't find anybody else. I'm announcing it to you. But the words that God gave the angels is this is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Savior, Christ, Lord. That's what God said about the child that was born where they keep the animals. He is Savior. He is Christ. He is Lord. Do you understand the weight and the significance of those words? That's what God said. That first he is Savior. Um, what the angel told Joseph, I remember, from Matthew 1, is you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people, this is significant, from their sins. The Savior was not a political Savior, not an economic Savior, uh, not a military savior, savior. No, this is the Savior who will save you from your sins sins. Um, he is also called Christ. The primary word is Savior, and then it's, it qualifies that a Savior who is Christ, which is, uh, is the Greek word for the Old Testament, uh, Hebrew word for Messiah, the anointed one. He is Savior. He is the Messiah who has been prophesied of and spoken of in the Old Testament. This is him. This is the Messiah. All of those prophecies, this is, this is the one. He is the fulfillment of, the, of the, the Jewish scriptures. So he is Savior. He is the anointed one who fulfills Jewish scripture. But maybe the most amazing one is he is Lord. A Savior who is Christ, the Lord. The child was deity. He was God. Now, those words are so significant. Uh, 
Last week I talked about Caesar Augustus. It's interesting historically that Caesar Augustus is called, you're not going to believe this, Savior. I don't know if he's the first Caesar or Roman ruler that they called Savior. I'm pretty sure. I don't know for sure. But when they talked about the emperor, the Roman emperor, they called Caesar Augustus. One of the titles was Savior, which spoke about a political uh, military Savior. The other thing historically, though, Caesar Augustus is the first Roman emperor that they assigned deity to. He is the first one that when they spoke of him, their declaration was, you've probably heard this historically, Caesar is Lord. It's this very word. In fact, if you push the story another 80 years out, uh, 70 years out, the Christians were brought before the Roman magistrates in their local towns, and they were, this is what the early church fathers tell us, when they were accused of being a part of a religion that was not sanctioned, they were told before the Roman magistrate to profess with their mouth, and they would be released. You know what their profession was? Caesar is Lord. And many of the early followers of Jesus died. They would not say Caesar is Lord. Do you know why? Because they believed in their affirmation of faith was Jesus is Lord. He is deity. He is the Savior. He is the anointed one. He is Lord. Uh, that was the announcement. It's not just a child. He is Savior. He is Christ. He is Lord. And it says in verse 12, And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Um, the sign, I, I thought about this. The sign was not just to identify where he was located. If the angel wanted just to say, Hey, when you go into Bethlehem and you want to find this child, he's not just saying, Hey, your sign... You're looking for the baby who's been born tonight that's in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. If he just wanted the physical location, he would have just said, hey, they're staying at the inn on Main Street down from the Tanner's house at the corner, uh, blah, blah, blah. That's the location where the child is. No, no. It's a sign, yes, so that when you get there, you'll know this is the child, but the sign always has symbolism. And I believe part of the reason that God appeared to the shepherds is because the, the shepherds understood the symbolism of the swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. In fact, it's very possible that this time of the year they were birthing lambs. You have to understand that these shepherds were the Levitical shepherds uh, that were raising sheep to take for sacrifice to Jerusalem, which is five or six miles away. That's what these men were doing. And they, this, was their, this was their business. They're selling lambs, sheep that are under one year of age, one years of age. And it was their practice that when those were birthed to protect them, 
and they were born in caves and rocky, uneven terrain, and they had, they had to be without blemish to be a sacrifice. So to sell the sheep, they had to be, they had to be unblemished. They couldn't have fallen down, scraped themselves, be maimed in any way. What did they do? They wrapped them up as a mama would do with a newborn baby, and they laid them somewhere safe. And so when the angel says this is a sign for you, it's not just about, oh, you'll know this is the child. No, this is foreshadowing of what will come, that this baby who is, who is Savior, who is Christ, who is Lord, that you understand he is the lamb that God has prepared, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I believe part of the reason that God appeared to the shepherd is because the shepherds would know the significance of the swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Because not only was he to be Savior, he would be a Savior like the lambs that you raise for sacrifice. But because he's God's lamb, he will take away the sins of of all of the world. The effect, uh, there's a multitude in verse 13. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. I, I read that word peace. The effect of all of this, of salvation, of what this child will bring, this child will bring peace. Uh, once again, this is, this is, this is something in the midst of of the Roman Empire and Caesar Augustus, who was known for their Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And I, did, I didn't say this last week. I need to call one of my timeouts right here. Why was it God's perfect time at this point? What was it about the Roman Empire? And I kind of maybe alluded to this, maybe you picked up on this, but because it was the most expansive kingdom in in the known world at that time, even to the present, during Caesar Augustus, that the gospel would have the freedom with the Roman roads and the Roman control and the Roman peace. The gospel, the church, would have ability to spread as, a, as in no other time in human history. Do you understand that? The Pax Romano, the Roman peace. But when the angels announce... In the midst of that, now the effect of this is glory to God in the highest, but on earth, peace. God will bring a peace, a spiritual peace, uh, that the Roman Empire knows nothing about. Um, verses 15 through 20, the shepherds respond, and I'll just, I'll just summarize this. The shepherds responded to the message. And get this. The messengers come. It's quite dramatic. They give him a very specific message. The child has been born. When they're given a message, there has to be some kind of response. They could have went, wow, okay, that's really big news, but we've got sheep to watch. So we're just going to sit right here and do nothing about the message. Uh, takes a little bit of faith, I guess, to leave the sheep and to go into town and to see 
is this really what happened? Has God done this? But this is what you see in the story in verses 15 through 20, and I won't read those. But the shepherds respond by acting on the message. They act on the message. They did something. The message always requires that we do something in response to it. The shepherds acted on it. They went into town. They experienced the message because when they got there, they verified that the message was there, that the baby was there. It was in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. So they experienced the message. They acted on the message, they experienced the message, and then in the story they proclaimed the message. What God had said to them, they say to Mary and Joseph, and then they say, they say it to everybody else. If the first evangelists were the angels, the second evangelists, those who were proclaiming the good news, were the shepherds. The shepherds responded by acting on the message, experiencing the message, and proclaiming the message. Won't you stand with me today? And I want to say this to close. I need you to stand, but I need you to hear. And so the Christmas message has come 2,000 years down the road in human history to us today. The message, the most significant event in all of human history to a world that's unaware, God sent the message. And those who have received the message and experienced the message have proclaimed the message so that we stand here today hearing the message that God, the most monumental event in all of human history in which we divide A.D. and B.C., God sent the Savior. Who fulfills the Old Testament Scripture, but is deity who became the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The message that is proclaimed at Christmas is there is no salvation in anyone else. There is no other way. The message is that Jesus saves, but we have to respond to that message. I, in my own life, uh, I think about this, that uh, this is my Sunday that I was baptized in 1972. I was saved in the summer. Baptized the Sunday before Christmas. Um, I think about that personally because I realize the message has to be responded to. I hope that you've heard the message today that God sent the Savior. It's the only way of salvation. But understand you have to believe. You have to place your faith. I know it seems strange. And I read the story and you... It's like such unremarkable circumstances of Mary and Joseph, Bethlehem, stable, swaddling clothes, a manger. Preacher, you're telling me that's the Savior of the world? That's what God said. And he sent his son to die for your sins and for my sins. But you must place your faith in him and believe. You must act on the message. Uh, this morning you have opportunity to do that. I couldn't think of anything greater that you could do today. There is nothing greater you could do today in which we commemorate 
the gift of the Savior than to place your faith in him by confessing your sins, confessing with your mouth that he is Savior, that he is Lord, that you want him to come and to take away your sins as the Lamb of God and to come and to take over your life and you surrender to him. We must respond in faith. And when we do, and many can give testimony to that, we experience, we experience the Savior. And many of us have not only responded by believing and have experienced, uh, but we come to the point that for many of us in this room, it is our responsibility like the shepherds to proclaim. I challenge you this Christmas season. The message came. God sent it. And if you've received it, you're responsible, responsible for proclaiming it to those around you. And so whatever your response is today, I, I pray that God would move your heart uh, to step down that path. So I'm going to lead us in prayer. The worship team will come and lead us. Uh, this is a song for you to respond. If you want to bring your offering for the world mission offering, the boxes here. At the end of this, I know Byron and I are going to be at the front. Will, you're going to be at the back, right? Because you're registering men for the men's retreat, aren't you? Okay, so Will's going to be at the back. But any of you, us that you would like to talk to, we are available. Father, today we... Um, I pray, Father, as the pastor of this church, that, Father, as the message is proclaimed today, that your spirit would touch hearts and you would move in those who have not placed their faith in Jesus to do so today. I pray they would have the courage to come and to speak to one of us about that decision at the end of this service. And uh, Father, I pray for those of us who have experienced it, that we would be faithful bold and diligent, intentional to proclaim that message to those around us. And so, Father, we commit this time to you, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.